This reading is from 2 Peter chapter 1, 3-11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will, be, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Jamie, for that reading. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. Emily G. There were a couple Sundays not long ago when there were like five mats here, and I was like, it's like eighth grade all over again. Everybody is named Matt. For this reason, make every effort to put on virtue. And in doing so, we don't become nearsighted and blind, forgetting we have been cleansed from our past sins. Last Sunday, um, we walked through the seven uh, vices as they're stun, understood by that, the sort of church corporate. We walked through some of the history that that starts really early after the death of Jesus with these group of, of, of early Christians. I mean, it's almost, uh, you would call them monks today, but they were pre-monks. Uh, they were the first monks. Uh, I guess you, there's a, the hipster monks. Um, you know, they did it first before it was cool. Um, they were these ones who went out into the desert and they went so that they could hear God more and more and clear. What they found is that the world around them was so loud. So they had to keep going further and further out to sort of restrict the noise of the world. And what they found when they got out there was these, these, uh, we talked about these seven, um, deadly sins, uh, but they looked at them as sort of seven deadly, uh, demons that would come and take place in your life. And that the more you cleaned your house, this is what we talked about from Luke's gospel, that, that unless you had something there to take the spot, they came back all the more. They came and filled the house. That was last Sunday, and if you uh, missed last Sunday, it's online and you can listen to it. Um, this Sunday is the seven virtues. Now, the seven virtues don't have as clean of a tradition as the seven deadly sins does. By clean, I mean it's not quite as clear how they oriented, and some of them, um, they seem to flow out of this early uh, pre-Christian philosophy, Aristotle, uh, Plato, um, you know, guys who were uh, not... Christian, because Christianity hadn't existed yet, um, but they weren't Jews either. And so the classical way of thinking about these virtues came from that moment. 
This is our map of Proverbs from the Bible Project. Um, again, I know it's too small, but it's at the top of the email every week. But what I just want to say is that we're in the portion of Proverbs where there are lots of short sayings. Uh, actually, one of those longer sayings was read during the worship set. That was three verses, three, four verses about as long as they get. Most of them are one, and they are reiterating of the same point. They have different literary structure, um, which in theory, maybe I'll spend time on. Next week is, is Proverbs 31. The Sunday after that, I'm going to try and preach on one proverb, and then we start Galatians. Uh, and I'm looking forward to starting Galatians and Proverbs 31. I don't know what I'm going to do preaching on one sermon, but here we are. Uh, or on one proverb. Um, but we're in that portion where there are these short sayings, um, and they sort of uh, come together to make up this, this notion of what wisdom is. What is this art of skilled living, as we've been calling it? What does it mean to have this in our world? And they're, they're complex, and they're simple at the same time. And last, last week, I read a quote from Ellen Davis that was on the back of the ser- uh, bulletin that suggested that these are better lived with. Like, you don't read through all these Proverbs from 10 to 29, 30, uh, and then go, well, done. But actually, you take one, and she suggested while you're chopping onions or showering or something else, you memorize it, and then it becomes something that comes to you in the course of living. And this is sort of how that artful living thing shows up here. Um, This is just a small aside. I'm going to work to try and get through. I have way too much material, so I'm going to try and do it as fast. Some of you hate that. I'm going to try to do it as short <laughs> as I can get through it. I won't say fast. But also, I, I had a joke with Kelly, is, is, is a symptom of COVID losing the uh, hearing in your right ear. I went swimming yesterday and got water in my ear, and I can't hear on that side, and it's really throwing me off. Um, so if you're visiting today and you're like, what's wrong with that guy? It's because I've just got blindness. And singing, you hear your voice way different singing when you have water stuck in your ear, and it was quite terrifying. Um, so we'll get into it. Well, I'll try to move uh, clearly and, and not fast, but, but uh, I'll try to be as short as possible around each of these points so that we can get through them. The seven virtues are where we're going, but as always, I try to aim to fill in some content before we get started. The first is this quote from C.S. Lewis, older poetry by continually insisting on certain stocks stock themes, as that love is sweet, death is bitter, virtue lovely, and children are gardens delightful, was performing a service not not only of moral and civil, but even biological importance. Since poetry has abandoned that office, the world has not bettered. We need more urgently to recover the lost poetic art of enticing a response without making it eccentric and of being normal without being vulgar. If you've had the privilege of reading um, older literature, whether it be Jane Austen or Middlemarch by uh, George Eliot or some of the Russian novels, um, the extent to which they are so normal and advocating for the moral life and picture that they have without making it vulgar is why we think they're so boring. Um, one, of the, one of the better children's, young adult novels are kind of a thing. One of the better young adult novels, I thought, for instilling virtue in the world in this recent age was, um, or at least giving us some sense of how the world is functioning, was the Hunger Games trilogy. Um, that trilogy is literally about children's going to an Olympics and murdering other kids. Um, so what Lewis is arguing here is in some sense, like we've lost this ability to talk about goodness and virtue and the forms 
of, of plainness in which they don't have to be vulgar or eccentric. We don't have to take the oddest circumstance of where these things could be practiced and make that where it is. So as you think through your media diet, um, it might be worth pondering sometimes on like, why is this uh, so eccentric? Or why is this such a vulgar example of achieving that virtue? And then in that way, how we lose the virtue in it. And the reason why I, I use this quote to start this part of the sermon is because the older poetry is, is Proverbs. They are so basic. To the extent to which they refer to the vulgar, it's only in short brevity. I think part of the problems with some of our modern entertainment is they want to aim us away from certain things, and yet they make those things so enticing at the same time. Um, it's quite odd to see, um, you know, not to uh, fall for an affair, but then to have affairs portrayed so boldly on TV. Um, that, that type of thing, I think, is interesting. And Proverbs, I think, help keep us on the road away from that. But one of the things I, I think about what Jamie read with that virtue, and last Sunday we t- talked about taking off the old self. That was taking off the seven deadly sins and putting on the new self, which would be putting on the virtues. Um, I used the phrase, how do we habituate ourselves to goodness? How do we habit ourselves towards putting on the life of Christ, to putting on the character of Christ? And I wanted to read this short quote. It's actually very long compared to the last one, if you notice, um, uh, from St. Augustine. Um, He hears about a friend who had become a Christian and lost uh, his ability to be a speaker. But he said he seemed quite happy as he was bold, for he found an opportunity to be at leisure in you. This was the very thing I longed for, but I was chained up. This is what I want to focus on, and how he becomes habituated towards bad and how we can become habituated towards good. I was changed up not by anything outside myself, but the iron fetters of my own will. The enemy held my will in his power and fashioned it from chains that held me fast. And indeed, a perverse will gives birth to inordinate desire, and then that will serves inordinate desire. A habit is formed, and when a habit is not resisted, it becomes a compulsion. But these small hooks, each one joined before, that is why I called them a chain. A brutal enslavement held me in its grip. And yet a new will had begun to arise within me, a will to worship you without desire of reward and to enjoy you. O oh God, our, sh- our only sure joy. But this new will was not yet strong enough of overthrowing my prior will, which had grown stronger and stronger the longer it endured. Thus my two wills, one the old and one the new, one carnal and the other spiritual, at war with one another, and by their conflict they laid waste to my soul." This is Augustine right before his conversion. What he's writing about is how um, lust and adultery had so become ingrained in him. And it wasn't outside of him, but it was this refashioning of a chain within himself that bound him. And our habits today, what we continually do over and over again, become these ways in which we either move towards that self that Christ has renewed within us, that we put on Christ, or our habits at times can be that which pulls us away from what God has called us to. Augustine, when he finally converts, I don't think he would say his soul is being laid waste, but that in some sense he's being renewed in that battle daily. Um, 
So depending on where you are in this journey, that, would, that might make some sense in applying it. But one of the things that I really wanted to say about that is how are we habituating ourselves to goodness? If you're one of the productivity followers at the moment, which I do way too much of, one of the things that's sort of been chic for the last uh, five to ten years has been habit. What are habits? It's the power of habit. Atomic habit and tiny habit are all books that have come out in the past uh, five years about how uh, we habituate ourselves to these things. This corresponds with willpower, too, um, if you followed any of that. Productivity literature is quite the mess. Um, but, But habit is one of those things we can take on as we reach and strive towards this goodness. And so the virtues, the seven virtues, are meant to make up the habits by which we can put on Christ in our lives. Before we get to the seven virtues, this is why succinct and and to the point is the goal today. Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, we've referred to After Virtue several times here, mainly for that end portion where where McIntyre says, you know, um, it's dangerous to draw a parallel between this age and another age, but our age seems, and this book came out in 1981. Alistair McIntyre, I should say, is a Marxist intellectual at this point and loves Aristotle more than Jesus, um, is what uh, Paul Kingsworth uh, mentioned as he read it this week. So he's starting to say, what does it mean to put virtue back together? But what he says at the end of the book is that, you know, it took people turning aside from shoring up the world as it was and building their own places where they could come together and the virtues could be reignited. That's one of the quotes I share her often, but the whole other half of the book, like I said, is that last paragraph. So actually the whole other, every page of the book um, is about how it's become that we're being ruled. And he says, what's clear is that when Rome was conquered, the barbarians were at the gates but we've been being governed by the barbarians for some time. That's McIntyre's point. And so the whole book is called After Virtue. And what does he mean? He means that we've moved into the spot where virtue has lost its hold. So going back to Lewis's quote, it becomes either vulgar or um, uh, eccentric in the ways that we think about it. And so he posits at the beginning of the book, if you've, there was a, a book in the 1970s called The Canticle of Leibowitz, I don't know if anybody's read that. Yeah, it's a post-apocalyptic story. I, I haven't read it, but he describes it at the beginning of the book that imagine that all the sciences have sort of, there's been a war and the sciences have sort of been destroyed. And what they have left are like fragments of the periodic chart, fragments of astronomy, fragments of biology and chemistry. And so they begin to gather these sort of into enclaves. And what becomes is they sort of like, Um, almost turn them into religious idols of sort of like, you know, well, we're on team biology and we're on team chemistry and not realizing that both of those have to talk to each other to sort of survive. What McIntyre posits in his book, he says the whole argument of his book, so we're going to have the last paragraph and the first paragraph done at Defiance Church. Uh, The middle is, is, is complex, but what he wants to posit in his book is that we live that way with the virtues today. We've so separated the virtues from where they come from and where their origins are that we don't know how to piece them together. And so we have slogans. And earlier when we were talking about adultery with Wendell Berry, uh, not with Wendell Berry, we are talking about adultery in the book of Proverbs, and a quote from Wendell Berry suggested that um, 
you know, we, we have this way of, of, of making sex so important in our society. It's the peak expression, and it's, it's very sacred, but we also treat it as the most vulgar thing ever. And then we get upset when it's, it's violated as a vulgar thing, and he says that's like um, blaming gravity for falling. Like, you build this world. And so that's what McIntyre is sort of positing here is all the virtues have been separated from their actual sort of holistic homes. And so we just sort of piece them together in ways that don't make sense. Um, and you could think about this in, in many different ways from uh, there's a whole um, publishing industry uh, sort of based around divorce as finding yourselves. Uh, eat, pray, love. Um, you know, I don't mean to pick on that sort of thing, but marriage is sacred would be something that most Americans would agree with. Also, um, writing a book about how you found yourself through leaving your husband is also sacred. Um, and that may be fidelity to self or being true to oneself. I don't want to pick on these things so much that, you know, it's one side so good against one side so bad. That may be a different virtue that's functioning there, but what we've done is divorced these so long from their context that we don't even know how we're using them together. Virtue has become sort of unhinged. What McIntyre suggests takes its place, this will be the last thing before we get to the virtues probably, um, is emotivism. Emotivism is the doctrine that all of value judgments are more specifically more judgments, uh, or more specifically more judgments, and nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling, insofar as they are moral or evaluative in character. So when we debate things today, we view things as expressions of our attitude, expressions of our preference. So long separated from the virtues or from Jesus or from anything else in which goodness resides, we battle with emotions today. And if you want to see how badly that can go, look at what it looks like for Americans to go through a pandemic. Science is divorced from all things. We sort of uh, evaluate based on our feelings and judgments. And Kelly and I were talking about this last night, is it just seems like every conversation is falling apart at the streams. It was because Kelly uh, had heard somebody at the pool uh, debating uh, he didn't think the vaccine was effective. And the other guy thought the vaccine was, he was like, I'm not sure I buy that. But the guy who came back with, I don't think I buy that, so pro-science, hooray, said, you know, I think the moon is fake, though. And hold up a rock, and a rock does not reflect light the way the moon does, which made me and Kelly think for a long time about what he was saying and how that might work out. Point being is, uh, conversations completely lack moral coherence today, not just science, but virtue and everything else. It's hard for us to talk to one another. If you attend Defiance Church and you're a robust believer in some ways, or are a robust believer in, in ways that are uh, fitting for you, um, it, it's, it's almost near impossible to express why you might not want to participate in the preferred pronoun part of a meeting. Um, and emotivism just seems to rule there on almost on your side and on their side. And all these things at which we could grasp at to help us through these things are disappearing. Um, we can't sort of logic or think together. So this is what McIntyre means by that we live after virtue. 
So back to the end of the book, what does it mean to set up communities as the goal is for Defiance Church, that while things are crumbling around us, we still practice and inhabit virtue here, which is what the bulk of today's sermon should be about, prayerfully. Um, it's funny, the, most of you know I preach from like a, like a, this type of thing, so largely from memory. I was on the wrong page, but I had all the right things. Um, uh, so uh, an error I made last week, we'll go to this graph from last week, or this from Wikipedia last week. These are the seven vices on one side and the seven virtues on the other. Um, and I said that we'll talk about these seven virtues next week. I was incorrect. These are seven different virtues than the cardinal and uh, theological virtues. So the theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. Uh, the other ones we'll talk about today as well. But what this comes from, and Jonathan isn't in here, but I, would, I wonder if he's heard of this. In the 5th century, there was a book written by a Christian bishop called uh, Psycho uh, Machina, Psych Psycho Machina um, in which he personified the virtues and, and sort of characters and the vices, a, and they went to battle, and the Christians won. Um, and so from the 5th century forward, this epic poem Never hear that phrase, epic poem, I just get excited, despite the fact if I try to read them, I get depressed because they're too hard for me. But this epic poem um, that sort of laid this out, sort of personified these two things. And so what, what the cure is for lust is chastity, what the cure is for gluttony or the virtue that corresponds to that is greed, uh, is temperance, greed is charity, sloth is diligence, envy is patience, wrath is kindness, pride is humility. And what I think that we capture in this is there's no middle ground. Um, you can be moving towards the virtues or you can be moving towards the vices, but this is the struggle that we engage in. This is what Peter is talking about. I'm put on virtue because you can go blind and nearsighted, forgetting that your past sins have been cleansed, that you've been placed in a different spot. So as I said, this is not what we'll be talking about today, but I have put uh, Psycho Machina, the epic poem, into my reading list. So, the seven virtues. Uh, I will go through the seven virtues today that make up um, the ones that we're talking about. These are an older tradition. Four are commonly shared at sort of the tradition as stated. Four of them are things that you might find in your non-Christian neighbor. The three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, are ones in which we only participate and gain from participation in Jesus Christ. And so this is, I think, a helpful as a pastor, you get this question from people in your church and outside. They're not always an overlapping circle, let me tell you, um, the, of, of outside-inside questions. But like, what should I say to people who I see goodness in but aren't a participant in your religious fellowship? Or are, um, I'm a participant, they're not. And it, the, the church has always allowed for, um, other thinkers have called them secular parables of the kingdom. Um, uh, anonymous Christians is Karl Rahner's phrase, although I think that one goes too far towards um, suggesting that they're in the faith. I think this one is helpful to say that there's goodness ingrained in Proverbs and wisdom through God's creative act that we can see in other people. But if we want to talk about faith, hope, and love, those are rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Um, and so there's a, a distinction there, but we shouldn't always be shocked to find goodness or wisdom outside of our church walls. Um, that is not to suggest that it's the place we should always be pursuing it or this, that, and the other, but it shouldn't surprise us as much either. 
The first of these is prudence. Um, How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get insight rather than silver. This one is to... um, is to do what is right in season, to do what is right in action. To, with prudence, I think there's this, uh, with, related to Proverbs, is to apply the Proverbs correctly, to know what's prudent in that occasion. Like, so if somebody's struggling with their kid and they're 22, and um, what's the proverb around kids? David, can you remind me? The, the correct the child and... Raise up the child in the way... And he will not depart from it. Um, if somebody's struggling with a 22-year-old and that's your advice to them, you are not being prudent. Um, you're probably just being harmful and mean um, because that's a different context and different question. So being prudent in that way is learning to apply these proverbs correctly. Being prudent is doing what's right in season. There's this idea of, uh, in Proverbs, and we've seen it, like the prudent person would go to the harvest rather than sleep in. And we tried to talk about that in an expansive way. It's not just that you would go to the harvest, but that you would participate with your community so it doesn't starve and die. Like we read a lot of these in individualistic tones, but a lot of it's trying to build a world that can survive in its faithfulness to God. Lacking the will to participate in what your society is doing, saying that my sleep is more important than the harvest, is to make your society, your community life, much harder. Being prudent is knowing how to participate in your community together. The, the last thing I, w- I would love um, about um, being prudent is, is, is knowing where to be engaged and all this stuff. But I think for us in the church today is to be prayerfully considering where we can um, speak the correct word to someone. It goes back to applying the Proverbs poorly, but to really think about where, and, and particularly the thin places where people, um, your coworkers, your friends, your family, uh, even people in the church, I don't just mean people outside the church, open up to instruction or to guidance, or to prayer, um, to be praying that we have uh, prudence in applying the right word. The church, in its wisdom, has sort of put prudence first over all the other virtues because it keeps you from excess or, or fanaticism about the other virtues. It's not like one of the other ones you're supposed to go totally crazy about and forget about the other ones. Um, uh, there's that challenge with prudence, too, is it helps us whitely, rightly weigh things in our ability to apply them. Um, this is, uh, I think it'll come up once we get to some of the other ones, justice, uh, fortitude, temperance. Um, we uh, can pick on sins that aren't our sins. We can pick on things that I'm really good at, but everybody else is bad at. We can make ourselves more fitting in that way. Prudence would would be saying that you need to... Um, properly assess these type of things, that you don't get to just rail on alcoholism despite never having had a drink. I mean, you would be a wise person to come through if you could practice that well, but to use that place as a stand of your moral virtue is perhaps not the right way. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's ways in which we can use prudence in ways that keep us from sort of uh, holy roller or higher righteous ni- uh, righteousness type things. Um, that's prudence. Justice. This one, I, 
is, is quite popular in our world, but is, like McIntyre says, completely divorced from what might be meant by justice in the biblical sense. And the first thing that I was shocked to find in many of the instances of justice as it's discussed historically and today in the Christian language is first justice to God, which is interesting because justice has totally become only my relation to my neighbor, like never about justice to God. And it's, it's called the virtue of religion in its way in which it moved towards God. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The first person we try to do justice to and towards and to gain insight from is from the Lord. And there's a reason because if we anchor ourselves in that place, it keeps us from um, perhaps the temptation of emotivism or other things in our world to say, I don't know how to do anything other than be for you in this. Which is to say, not that we're against you, but because we have some instruction we've received some, someplace else, we have a different notion of what it means to be for you. Being for you from um, the world of moralistic therapeutic deism, let's pick on that since it's been a while. Um, uh, being for you from that realm is different than being from you as one who has been rescued by the God of Israel and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Different things become possible if that's the case. It's not um, a question of how can we bargain with your self-destruction, but how can we free you from it? How can we help you live in fruitfulness and goodness in your life rather than set up specific times for you to live in that debauchery. Uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but then to come home and to sort of be uh, centered again. It's, it's to say that we can hope and be for people in deeper ways than we think if justice is our only guide, which is not to cut out the other form of justice, which is justice towards our neighbor. Uh, I think I have a quote for that one. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. That we can um, injustice uh, withhold, and what that leads to is more, and not injustice, and injustice withhold, and what that leads to us suffering more want. This is what a lot of the Proverbs that have to do with justice sort of say, is that to live in generosity and goodness and sharing is our actual human goal, and we can actually pull away from that into destructiveness um, in our own ways. Um, uh, to, to have respect and dignity towards other people might free us um, in being seeing them as gifts rather than as challenges. Um, and I think that's a big thing that Proverbs shows for us is, is your neighbor and other people aren't always the thing that are in your way, but might actually be the means towards you becoming a more wise person. Um, so I would like to go grow wise in my office by myself with no one around and read books and gain wisdom in that sense. What Proverbs says and says, in religion, living life with your neighbor and in community, you can gain injustice and wisdom that way. If you were to divorce yourself from that, you would become, uh, it doesn't say, probably weak and unwise. Um, but that's justice. Um, again, I think that's one that's largely been divorced from what it might mean coming from God today. And one of the things that um, uh, Stanley Hauerwas has a little book on virtues that he wrote to his godson, one each year as the child aged, which if you've read anything by any theologian, seems like a bad idea. We got a new letter from your 
godparent, Stanley, and it's written about Aristotle and McIntyre and have fun. Uh, he said, I anticipate you'll read these when you're older. Um, but he talked about justice, and he's a man of the South um, uh, dealing with civil rights. He grew up with segregated water fountains and the such, and he says that we saw that as an injustice and sought to repair it, but Part of the problem for Americans is we think about justice in a right contractual, contractual agreement only sort of way. There's very little human flourishing attached to justice in our, in our way today. It's sort of like if we could reset society so that was, anybody want to say next? Fair, that would be justice. It's all sort of building contracts and relationships. But the actual kingdom of God, which comes in justice, is one bent towards flourishing, not just having fairness and uh, equality or equity in ways that sort of can pull that away. So in, in sort of fixing uh, the separate but equal thing, he says they sort of moved further, though, also into just seeing contracts and equal access to goods and all these things as justice when they are, in fact, maybe part of the way of going to justice but are not the wholeness of living in human flourishing together. Fortitude, um, which I had to look up, um, is what we would call court courage, uh, and then it made sense. Um, this is the one that was read during the worship set. If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being away led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does, it, does, he who, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will, he, will not he repay everyone according to what they have done? Courage is this one that is interesting. Again, this was in the Hauerwas letter on courage. It's one that you often, when it's seen in the world, people don't know they have it. So when we talk about people who rush into b burning buildings or to intervene um, uh, in violent situations, and this is not just, don't just hear um, police officers and firemen here, but people who do that type of stuff, they normally when they're interviewed are like, I just was doing my job. I didn't know what else I could do. I felt like I had to go into that place. Like, they're not people who said, you know, I've been really stretching myself in the discipline of courage lately, and that was my moment to shine in that. And a lot of these virtues are that way. The more I think we try to grow an awareness of them and doing them, the more we lose that prudence sort of thing, is that we're not doing them in their own sort of ways. But courage is this one in which we um, often see in people who don't know they have it. Um, Interestingly enough, there's a, uh, this is a way too long G.K. Chesterton quote for today. Maybe I'll put it in the email. Uh, he talks about this I idea that we, to, to act in courage, you have to be willing to disregard your li not life enough to go into that situation, um, to go into that place, but love it enough to survive it. So if you don't love it enough to survive it, to, to sort of want to come to the other side, you're not acting courageously. You're actively um, acting recklessly, regardless of whether you survive or not. This is kind of how courage is portrayed in certain movies. On the other side of the coin, if you um, only want to save your life, you will not act courageously. You'll sort of be locked into and sort of not going in courage. And so he talks about that, that it's this balance between the both. That's Chesterton. What I would say is the last thing to say about courage is that the world often applies it to soldiers, and soldiers do act in courage, but the church has rightfully seen the peak of courage in martyrs. 
those who witness to what God has done. Because in, in martyrdom, you're willing to say that this violence, this accusation, this destruction of me and my belief isn't the last word. When you exist in violence, it's sort of a competitive on who's going to get the last words. In the words of, of George Patton, it's not your job to die for your country, it's your job to make sure the poor other bastard dies for his country. Um, uh, which is to say that that's how violence works towards courage. But in the church, there's this way in which we can take up martyrdom and find our own courage there, because it is God who vindicates us in the end. This will tie into love at the end. Temperance. Um, people love to sign up for a lecture on temperance. Um, this, I think, touches on rightly ordered loves. Uh, this Chesterton was supposed to be in here twice. This one's shorter. To live well is nothing other than to love God with all one's heart, with all one's soul, and with all one's efforts. From this comes, no, this is not Chesterton. The other one is not in here. Um, that's summary for this section. The Chesterton one I thought I had, which is in my notes, is about that to, uh, to complain that you can only marry one woman is to be ungrateful that you can marry somebody at all. And he talks about the way in which we... Um, can be thankful, and I think thankfulness is this key thing for temperance, count our blessings, because it's to say, I only got to see one sunset in Hawaii. He says it's to be unthankful to have seen one at all, to have God sort of moved in that place. And this can lead us to temperance in that gratitude. This isn't, again, nobody likes to sign up for lectures on temperance. Gratitude can lead us to know that the goodness of what has been there, rightly ordering our loves, rather than just seeking more and more and more, that we can be thankful in where we are. Uh, that quote ends with um, Oscar Wilde said, uh, we would appreciate sunsets more if we could pay for them, to which Tresterson responds, we can pay for them, we can pay for them by not being Oscar Wilde just one of the great slams in, in uh, Christian devotional literature of all time. Um, but this notion that you can pay for them in being grateful for them. You can pay for them in seeing and participate in them. Paying for them is such a petty way to look at this. Sorry, Oscar Wilde. This is the quote on the back of the bulletin. To live well is nothing other than to love God with all of one's heart, with all of one's soul, and with all of one's efforts. For this it comes about which love is kept whole and uncorrupted through temperance. No misfortune can disturb it, and this is fortitude. fortitude. It obeys God and is justice and is careful in the discerning things so as not to be surprised by deceit or trickery, and this is prudence. This is this four summary that comes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church on sort of what each of these things and how they weigh together, which brings us to the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. These are core things for Defiance Church. We talk about faith um, in a different way than Proverbs is going to talk about it, but faith is that which orients us towards the creative acts that God has done in history and into us and inspires faith within us in the moment. Uh, Proverbs is closer on this one than hope and love. By steadfastness, love, and faithfulness, inequity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. That in faith, we move into this path of wisdom. And again, faith by knowing one who is, um, we have fear for, 
we gain different paths than would have been available to us without that. One of my favorite stories from the book of Exodus is the story of the midwives, Shipra and Pua, who are named, whereas the pharaoh, who is neurotic about being remembered, is unnamed. But what it says about these midwives um, and is that they feared God. And what's always, uh, I forget the, it's, it's almost portrayed in a way is that they had good reason to fear Pharaoh. Who doesn't have good reason to fear Pharaoh or the powers that be or things that can take and steal and destroy? But because in their order, their hierarchy of fears, God was higher, they had access to resisting Pharaoh's demands. Through the faith that they had something higher in God, they, they knew, okay, Pharaoh said to kill all the Hebrew boys. That would please Pharaoh. But because we fear one beyond just our fear of Pharaoh, we actually have access to other things. This, I would say, is important to keep in mind when we have to lie at work or to maintain relationships, other things like that, to have that proper sense that there is something beyond If I don't do this at work, I'm fearful I might lose my job. But if it's something that pulls away from that justice to God or any of these other things, then perhaps we need to properly weight our fears again and to know that there is something worse than losing our job. Um, It is is knowing God in these other ways. Uh, Hope Um, is coming up. I had two for faith, but we're we're running low on time. Uh, Hope. Uh, Hope placed in mortals die with them, and all promise of their power comes to nothing. Hope uh, in in Proverbs um, sees and assumes in God rootedness in creation. Hope we often talk about as a future-oriented posture, which I think predominantly biblically it is, that God will reconcile all things, that God will bring things all um, under his reign, that God will bring... Uh, 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 end dysfunction, end these things. Hope is that thing. But what Proverbs sort of asserts by hope is that it is also ingrained in creation in the ways that we practice wisdom. Hope isn't only a deposit for the future in Proverbs. It's something because of Lady Wisdom weaving it throughout creation that speaks and comes to us now. That, that hope is something that we can practice and live into in the present. It's not just this future-oriented thing out there, um, but it has uh, resonances within creation that speak to us now. Love, and the greatest of these was love. Better to dine on uh, herbs where love is, uh, where love is, than a fattened ox and and hatred with it. Uh, the other one is hatred stirs up contract, but love covers all wrongs. Love, or in the classic sense, charity. Um, if you read the King James, is the greatest of these things. Charity is the greatest of these three things. Is this um, living in relationship to others in which we want and, and achieve and work towards the betterment for them. We have love of God. We have love of neighbor. Love is this um, multifaceted thing. And in Proverbs, it works towards reconciliation, such as this one, is hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all things. What does it mean for us to move and live towards reconciliation? The quote that I think captures this the best is, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, in McIntyre's sense, I think, has been divorced from this type of fierceness to it. 
Our notion of love is so weak compared to one that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, Going back to that quote, but love covers all wrongs. We are grateful to have a God who covers all wrongs for us. We have two ends to the sermon. We'll just go with one. Actually, we just have one. Uh, Quotidian, did I say that right? Quotidian, quote, the book of Proverbs, this means ordinary or regular in some ways, but I like that it says quotidian because it makes us at least there's something important there. And that important thing that Proverbs talks about is the quotidian is where our holy lives are sanctified and live. Oftentimes we think if I prayed more or if I read my Bible more or if I added more spiritual things to my life, I would become a better Christian. Probably true. But also what wisdom speaks, what Proverbs speaks, is that our ordinary lives, this is why so many of those short sayings are so applicable to many different situations of our lives, is where holiness is actually lived. We don't move to some other plane to become holy, wise people. It's in relationships with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our bosses. These type of things are actually where holiness reigns. And too often, I think the church says, holiness is what you do in your quiet time, rather than the quiet time is what, what can feed you into the practiceness of holiness and generosity in your life. Uh, so we only abandon the quotidian at the expense of what Proverbs teaches us, which is that our actual lives are the home for wisdom and fruitfulness and goodness. Which brings us to the quote that was supposed to be on the back of the bulletin, but I forgot about it until I was reviewing my notes one last time, which is the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is the human fully alive. This is a quote from St. Irenaeus um, in the first and second centuries. But what he's trying to say is this this quotidian aspect that I just spoke of, is that human flourishing is found in our full awakeness, fully aliveness in our daily lives. We don't rush to get away from that conversation with someone. We don't rush to shut off this thing. We don't look at our lives in scarcity, but what we find is that in our full aliveness, we live in the wisdom of God. And is that wisdom that we see in Jesus Christ, who models all this in his own ways. Um, Jesus is the wise one who knows how to apply all these correctly. Um, when we look at his, his biographies, which are the Gospels, we'll find more and more what it means to practice wisdom in the world and how he responds and talks to people. Um, and of course, it's, it's my fear, and I think properly so, that we can lose that when we, when we focus too much on Proverbs or any one book. We need to remember that our entry into this and the path of doing it is Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, you have guided the wisdom into ascribing seven virtues for us. Let us put on virtue so that we know we have been freed from our sins. Let us move towards life. Let us see that the exercise of wisdom is something that goes in our daily lives. The ordinariness of life is not foreign to you, but is what you've designed for us to be your partners in creation and practicing wisdom. 
Habituate us to that. Attune our hearts to wisdom so that we may follow you into goodness and truth. In the pattern of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.